we will have a new president in the United States, and the lineup for incoming President Biden has started to take shape. Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Karen Tkach-Tesman, Senior Editor. Today, we'll take a look at who will be calling the shots that affect regulatory policy for biopharma companies in the new administration. Steve, last week, you broke the story that Janet Woodcock's likely appointment as acting FDA commissioner to succeed Stephen Hahn could well be an audition for her to be in that role on an official basis. Well, on a permanent basis. People have been briefed by the transition say that Janet Woodcock is going to be the acting FDA commissioner. Nothing's done until it's done, so we'll have to see, but it looks like that's what's going to happen. She's certainly an experienced hand on the wheel, and it sets up a a question of who President-elect Biden is going to want to have in charge of the FDA on a permanent basis. The two names that are being discussed by the transition team are Janet Woodcock and former principal deputy FDA commissioner, Josh Sharfstein. It's possible that having Dr. Woodcock in as acting commissioner will also create breathing room for other names to emerge. So Steve, there are pretty strong feelings both for and against Woodcock. Can you just walk us through who thinks that she's great? I mean, I think it's understood that she's a steady hand at, at the wheel kind of thing, but I know that there are also people who have been troubled by some of her past decisions. So you have to start by saying that she's got an enormous cheerleading squad. There are a lot of people in FDA and in the life sciences ecosystem who think that she would be a fantastic FDA commissioner. She really created the idea of regulatory innovation. She's responsible for a lot of the forward motion that has made it possible to develop drugs more rapidly to do it more efficiently, to do it with more input from the patient community. On the other hand, I think there are two sets of detractors. There's kind of the academic physicians and some of the nonprofit groups who believe that Dr. Woodcock was too too close to industry and that she was responsible for lowering standards at FDA. I have to say on that, that Congress heard those complaints and rejected them. They wrote the 21st Century Cures Act, which really etched many of the things that Dr. Woodcock had been trying to do over the years. It etched those things into law. And then there's a second set of people who take issue with individual decisions, specific decisions that Dr. Woodcock made. I think the two most important ones along those lines for the biopharm industry is the decision to approve Sarepta's Exondus 51 for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which was an extraordinarily controversial decision. And the other is a sense in the public health community that Dr. Woodcock didn't do enough to prevent the opioid abuse epidemic. Steve, I just want to go back to one of the things that the biopharma community, people that I'm speaking with, are singularly concerned about for FDA moving forward, and that is how much innovation they will allow, endpoints. What people tell me is that, obviously, across the divisions, there are differences, but that there is a danger that FDA will be terribly slow moving on some of the things that they're looking for. 
You talked about regulatory innovation being one of Dr. Woodcock's priorities. So do you think that is something she could spread throughout the agency and give confidence to biopharmas? That's the way the agency will move? I think that there's some misconceptions among the public, certainly in the present White House and in the biopharma industry about exactly what the FDA commissioner does. Certainly the FDA commissioner sets overall policy and directions, but she or he doesn't make individual decisions about specific endpoints and development programs and things like that. I think that what's more relevant for that is the fact Patricia Cavazzoni uh, has taken over as acting director of CEDAR. She was very close with, with Dr. Woodcock, and my understanding is that she certainly shares the ideas and philosophy that Dr. Woodcock has had over the last two decades. So I think that you're likely to see forward motion along those lines, regardless of who the FDA commissioner is. Excellent. And what's happening at HHS, Steve? Xavier Becerra is going to be the HHS secretary, assuming that he is confirmed. He was an unexpected pick. And I think he exemplifies something that is happening, I think, in Joe Biden's picks across government, where he's picked people who he's personally comfortable with, who have solid backgrounds in management and leadership, who fulfill his pledge to have a cabinet that looks like America, rather than people necessarily have deep subject matter expertise in the departments that they're going to be leading. It remains to be seen how that will work out. I think that the kind of prevailing wisdom in Washington is that can work if the number two people in cabinet positions have that expertise. I think there's another thing. Part of that, you're right, is having a cabinet that reflects America, but there are several ways that Biden is sending a big message. And for me, one of the really big ones was when he appointed Eric Lander, who is the co-founder and director of the Broad Institute, as the presidential science advisor and the director of Office of Science and Technology Policy, the OSTP, the first biologist to be put in that position. But I think most importantly, he elevated that to a cabinet level position. And he has tasked Lander with, he, he wrote a letter to him saying, I want you to sort of have five priorities in the same way as Vannevar Bush had. And he really wants him to revamp science policy and the preeminence of the US in science. That's very important for biomedical science to have that placed as a priority. I think there's no question that Landon knows that. He's certainly a subject matter expertise in that area. Oh, um, no, I, I a big message there. No, I agree. I think there's a, it's a huge message and potentially it could be tremendously important. It's a huge message because as you say, it's a shift from having physicists in that role. The, the role was created in the aftermath of the Second World War and populated by physicists in the atomic era. Now we're in the era of biology and having Eric Lander in that position is hugely important for that reason. And as you say, having him in the cabinet, it puts him in a position to influence the future of science and technology policy in the United States in a way that nobody has ever had in the past. I also think it's worth noting that today it was announced the assistant secretary for HHS appointment of Rachel Levine, who would be, I think, the highest ranking transgender person in a role in the United States and who does come with a pediatrician and public health background that is sort of very directly relevant to the role. Now, David Kessler was in the running for FDA commissioner, so we heard he was obviously FDA commissioner in the past and 
an important advisor on Biden's team during the campaign. What happened there, Steve, and where has he landed in the administration? So Kessler is an example of senior advisors to Biden, people who Biden was personally very comfortable with. People in Washington honestly were bemused by the speculation and the word that was coming out of the transition team that Kessler was actually a candidate to return to FDA as commissioner. Instead, he was given a position basically replacing Monsef Slaoui, who is the co-leader and chief science officer for Operation Warp Speed. It's not going to be called Operation Warp Speed anymore, but it's going to have a similar mission, and that's going to be Custer's job. It also remains to be seen what he's going to make of that job. Unlike of Slaoui, Kessler doesn't have experience in vaccine development or in medical product development at all, but obviously he does have deep experience in public health, so it'll be very interesting to see what he does with that position. Steve, I know you just spoke with Stephen Hahn. Today, I suppose, is his last day as FDA commissioner. What did he have to say? So I asked Han about the friction between FDA and HHS and the White House. He acknowledged that HHS has taken actions recently that he opposed, including creating renewable term limits for FDA center directors. And he attributed the conflict basically to impatience on the part of HHS and White House with the deliberative scientific process that FDA needs to go through. He also endorsed the idea of finding ways for FDA to be more independent from HHS and from political influence in general. One of the other things that I asked him about that I thought was quite interesting, I asked him about emergency use authorizations, especially the fact that NIH has posted statements saying that some products that have EUAs, including the monoclonal antibodies, should not be considered standard of care and should be used only in clinical trials. On the other hand, HHS Secretary Alex Azar and other HH officials said last week that COVID patients who qualify should request access to antibodies, and HHS has published a locator map telling people where they can get access. So I asked Han what it means to have these kinds of mixed messages, and he conceded that it's a problem and said that he thinks that there should be more consistency across government about the messages that are sent out on emergency use authorizations. He, he also implicitly defended FDA's decision to issue and then withdraw the hydroxychloroquine emergency use authorization. He said science evolves quickly in a pandemic situation and FDA needs to be able to make decisions quickly when the science and the evidence changes to reverse those positions. Steve, I have a quick question about what you said regarding clarity and consistency of decisions. Is this something that is the fog of war, is sort of the COVID era in particular, or is that something that has been a problem even outside of COVID? No, it's never happened before. And I don't know if it's uh, a result of COVID or if it's a result of the kind of dysfunctionality of the Trump administration, but there has been an almost a, a feud between FDA and NIH over some of these emergency use authorizations. What Han suggested is that there's a difference in view about what an authorization means, that FDA sees its role as providing EUAs for products if the balance of evidence suggests that they're more likely to be helpful than not, and there really isn't anything else available. Whereas NIH is making statements 
based on the standards that people would make for approved products in a normal situation. Alrighty, let's change gears here. We have Karen on. Last week, she wrote about early cancer detection test companies. Last week, we saw the debut of two more venture-backed companies in the space. And that suggests there is still appetite for new approaches, even as bigger players such as Grail and Thrive consolidate via M&A and prepare for commercial launch. Delphi Diagnostics raised an Orbamed-led $100 million Series A round to develop a test based on fragmentation patterns in plasma cell-free DNA, and Early Inc. raised $40 million in support of its synthetic biopsy imaging essay in a round led by Costla Ventures. Karen, what distinguishes these new companies from the bigger players out there? So with Grail and a lot of others, we've seen a big focus on methylation patterns in cell-free DNA. We've done some stories with tables, rounding up the different companies and what they're doing. And methylation in cell-free DNA is a lot of what the space is doing. And these two companies are taking a pretty different approach. Delphi is going after what they call the fragmentome, which is exploiting the fact that cancer cells, as they are dividing, replicating, they're poorly packaging their DNA and doing so in ways that lead to big systemic differences in the way that DNA is then fragmented when those cells die. And apparently these patterns are pretty robust to pick up on across the board in terms of different cancers from lots of different tissues of origin. The fragmentation pattern can also lead you back to what is the tissue of origin for those cancers. The founders of the company published a study in 2019 in Nature that dug into the method. And that it's interesting there from Johns Hopkins, which was also where some of the founding technology for Thrive came from as well. And this is a pretty different approach because it really relies on fragmentation patterns across a broad spectrum of the whole genome. And that allows you to do what's called, instead of deep sequencing, sort of shallower sequencing across more of the genome, which they say will make it more cost effective, that they'll be able to do this more cheaply and therefore make early cancer detection screening more accessible across a broader population at a lower price point. And then early is a, a pretty different approach. It's sort of an imaging, a medical imaging-based approach where they inject some sort of agent. They haven't disclosed the composition, but that apparently triggers cancer cells into producing a synthetic compound that is then detectable by PET imaging. And they argue that the advantage of this is that it allows you to literally localize where the cancers are using imaging approaches. Pretty different than what we've seen from some others in this space and looking forward to them disclosing more about how it works. Karen, so people have been waiting for a long time to move to sort of liquid biopsies and different forms of early cancer detection is 2021 going to be a pivotal year for that, or are we, are we still in the early stages? No, I think it's going to be a pretty pivotal year. So Grail announced that they are launching their gallery test as a lab-developed test, I guess, in February. And so we'll start to see rollout of that. They also have a, a collaboration going with NHS to sort of prove out what that can look like at a system-wide level. 
we're going to start to see commercial access to some of these pan-cancer liquid biopsy tests. And we're also going to start to see building evidence base for the clinical utility of them. One thing is, can they detect cancer reliably? But the other thing is, did that change outcomes for patients? Did having an early detection allow for interventions that wouldn't have happened otherwise that were life-saving, that were cost-saving? This is some of the next level of evidence that's going to be collected on some of these front-runner tests. Excellent. I think that's all we have time for this week. All of podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.